while back, I was watching an interview with a well-known writer, actor, director, and devout atheist, William Fry. And he was sharing in this interview of why he does not believe in God. And in the interview, he raised a very common argument often used by atheists. In this interview, he argued that there is too much evil in the world to believe that God exists. Many atheists, when arguing the existence of God, appeal to this point. They say, when, when I look at the world, though it is beautiful and amazing, there is also pain and suffering and injustice. And they argue that this is a problem for Christians. In the interview, Fry said, you can't just say that there's a God when the world is beautiful. You have to account for bone cancer in children. Many atheists, they hold to this point. They argue that because evil exists, a good God who is in control cannot. We're going to learn this morning that of all the belief systems in our world today, atheism being one of those belief systems, there is no belief system that provides a better answer to the problem of evil than Christianity. Christianity teaches us that evil does in fact exist, but God is not to blame for it. We are. Though God created the world the way he wanted it, and, and, you know, right and perfect and, and good, and though he created us in a right relationship with him, we turned away from him. And because of our rebellion, sin entered into God's perfect world and ruined and wrecked it, which is the reason why we're in the shape we're in today, right? Scripture also teaches us that though evil exists and we are to blame for the evils in our world today, God, get this, though he does not cause evil, does allow it and uses it for his purposes. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nahum. If you don't know where Nahum is found, don't worry, you're probably not alone. You can look in the table of contents or you can look between the books of Micah or Habakkuk or you can do what a lot of folks have done, which is just turn to Matthew, start flipping backwards till you land on Nahum, all right? And this book, though small, is a very important book because in the book of Nahum, we learn how to think about evil, and how we make sense of the existence of an all-powerful, holy, and righteous, and just God, and the existence of evil. The book of Nahum serves as a, a paradigm for us to teach us how we're to think about the existence of a good and sovereign God and the existence of evil. Now, before we get into this book, let's discuss a bit of the background to Nahum. This will really help you going forward. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, An oracle concerning Nineveh, 
the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, like is the case with many of the minor prophets in this section of scripture, we don't know very much about Nahum. We know that he was a prophet sent to the southern kingdom of Judah. We know he was from Elkosh and that he wrote this letter to the Jews in the south about the, the coming destruction of Assyria. Nahum, of course, is writing during the divided kingdom period. And he's writing after the fall of, of Israel in the north, but before the fall of Judah in the south. Remember we said Israel fell first. They fell in, in the north first and they fell to the Assyrians. And then we learn that Assyria later falls to Babylon and then the Jews in the south fall to Babylon as well. Well, Nahum is writing before the fall of the southern kingdom and he's writing about the coming destruction of this wicked city, the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria and the, the, the fall of this wicked nation as well. And Nahum is, is writing to those in the southern kingdom of Judah because at this time, after the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, the, the Assyrians begin to persecute the Jews in the south. They began persecuting them and Judah is being abused by the Assyrians and especially those in the wicked city of Nineveh. And so Nahum is writing to these Jews to, to really to comfort them and to tell them, listen, though times are tough, for you right now, though these wicked Ninevites causing you all kinds of, of problems, Nahum writes to them and tells them basically to take care. Be hopeful. God is in control. And he is going to take care of these wicked Ninevites. He is going to handle them. Now, for many of you, it hadn't been very long since we are in Jonah. You remember in the book of Jonah, right? Where we talked about the Ninevites there in Jonah. And remember we said a few weeks ago, Jonah went to the Ninevites and he prophesied and he preached against them and to them. And what happened? Yeah, they, they repented, right? They, they turned away. We had great revival in Nineveh in Jonah's day. They repented from their sin from the top on down. We're told that the king of the capital of Assyria got off his throne and humbled himself, put on sackcloth and set in ashes. I mean, it was a great revival. Well, by the time of Nahum, Nineveh is back to their old sinful and wicked ways. We learn in this book that God has had enough and he is about to bring this wicked city and this depraved nation, the nation of Assyria, to its knees. He's about, a, he's about to put an end to these people. He's been very gracious with them, hasn't he? He really has. Now he's going to bring them to their end. And as we study through this book, not only do we see how God deals with this wicked nation, but we learn here some basic principles about evil in general and how we should think about 
the evils in our world. And, and we learn here how God deals with evil in this book. And we learn why evil is not a problem for him. So what I want to do for the rest of the morning here is share with you what we learn about and how we should think about the existence of evil as Christians from the book of Nahum. Notice first, we learn here, first point, that evil exists. Evil exists, that's point number one here in Nahum. Did you know that there are many in our world today who deny the existence of evil? They do. And the reason why is because they deny the existence of God, which, by the way, folks, that's consistent. It's consistently wrong, but it is consistent. Now, even though I do not believe that those people truly believe in the absence of evil like they say they do, many atheists have concluded that if you deny the existence of God, then you must deny the existence of evil. Because if there is no infinite and eternal God who gives us universal and moral laws, if there is no one who stands over us and says, this is right and this is wrong, if, if we are no different than the animals in the wild, which most of them make that point, if there is no deep, meaning in human life, then deep down there's no such thing as good and evil. It's not universal. It's man-made, and who's to say I can't redefine what good and evil is? It comes from men. And here's the thing with those who do hold that view, because some of the atheists try to be consistent, even though I don't truly deep down believe that they believe there's no evil. But here's, here's where their view falls apart. It's real simple. I'd like to see them explain the fact that evil does not exist to a Holocaust survivor. Or a father and mother whose child has been abducted. I mean, we know better, right? We do. We, we know that evil exists. And guess who affirms this? God does. What more do you need, right? He's very clear in his word that evil exists, and it exists in different forms. There are different types of evil. There is what is called personal evil. This is when evil is personified in a particular individual. Examples from scripture of this would be Pharaoh, King Ahab, or his wicked wife Jezebel, Herod in the New Testament, Judas Iscariot, even Satan himself, examples in history would be Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-il, among others. These are examples of personal, individual evils. You also have what is called natural evil. There are lots of natural evils that many of us have, have witnessed in our day, right? Either directly or we've seen it on the news. We've witnessed countless number of tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and floods and fires that have devastated homes and towns and, and cities and have claimed the lives of many. There's a third form of evil as well, known as institutional evil. Institutional evil is as it sounds. It's when a, an institution at its core is 
evil. Think about Nazi Germany, the Third Reich. That's a, a government institutional that's institutionally evil right there. And there, there are also businesses that can be institutionally evil due to the product that it's selling or because it is run in a, in a dishonest and unethical way. Examples of these types of businesses would be the porn industry. Also, uh, businesses that at one time were owned and run and operated by the mob. Those are, those are examples of institutional evils. We also learned that a city or even a nation can be evil in this way as well. And this is, of course, what we have here with the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And as I explained a few weeks ago in the book of Jonah, Nineveh and the, and the greater nation of Assyria was wicked to the core. Look at Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Notice how Nahum describes Nineveh here. Woe to the bloody city, he says. All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Wow. This time, this area of the world, Nineveh was one very powerful and extremely prosperous, but was also an extremely wicked city. It was a bloody city, as Nahum describes here, who didn't value human life in the least bit. Remember we said when we were talking about Jonah that they would come back from war and they would take the heads of their enemies and they would stack them up outside the city gates. They would fillet people alive to torture them. It's a horrible, horrible city. So we learn here from Nahum that evil exists, right? It exists. And, and not only does it exist in the form of, of individual and, and natural evils, but also in an institutional form as well. And here's the second thing we learn about evil from the book of Nahum. Not only do we learn that evil exists, but we also learn, get this, this is key, we learn that God does not cause evil, but he allows it and uses it for his purposes. Though evil exists and God does not cause it, he does allow it and uses it for his purposes. When you talk about evil in Christian circles, a philosophical question is normally raised. Many have asked this question. If, if God exists and is in control and he is good, then why is there evil? Pretty good question, right? Like I said earlier, many atheists believe this is the Achilles heel of the, of the Christian faith. Many atheist philosophers have concluded that if God is really in control, then he can't really be good. And if he's really good, then he can't really be in control because evil exists. This is what many refer to as the problem of evil. It begs the question, how can a sovereign God who is in control coexist with evil? And if many of you are honest in here, you've wrestled with this question as well, am I right? 
How many of you have ever been through a, a dark and difficult season of life? Maybe you, you lost a loved one, you had severe health issues, experienced some sort of, of financial crisis, and you asked this question, God, why is this happening? Are you there, God? And do you even care? Anybody ever been there? Be honest. Yeah. Well, let's address this question. What is the relationship between a good, sovereign God and evil? First, the Bible clearly teaches us that God does not cause evil. Listen to what James says in James 1, 13 through 14. You can mark this down. You'll be reading and discussing these in your small group this week. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Who's at fault, folks? Who's to blame? Who's lured and enticed? We are. Verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Here's the thing, though the Bible clearly teaches that God tests us, the Bible also clearly teaches that God does not tempt us. There is a difference. Tempting is when you entice someone to do something they should not do by appealing to their sin desire. God doesn't do this. Like James says, God tempts no one. He cannot and will not do that which is is evil. However, though that's the case, we also have to affirm that God does in fact allow evil. Case in point is Job. Remember, Satan had to get God's permission before he could bring any evil upon Job, and God allowed it. So though God does not cause evil, though he is not the author of evil, he does allow it. And this is so important for us to understand, folks, because at times when bad things happen, we just want to get angry at God for everything, don't we? And and though it's okay to be honest with God about how we're we're feeling and, and seek guidance and direction from him, it's also important for us to know how God works in our lives and world so that we can address him in a correct and biblical way. I hear some people upset about the circumstances or what they're struggling with, blaming God, and I'm like, man, you need to read your Bible. Shouldn't be upset with God about that, angry with him. We learn from Scripture. We, we, we cannot blame God as if He's the cause or the root of evil. Scripture clearly tells us Satan's to blame, right? He's the one who's been sinning since the beginning and is the father of lies. And Scripture also tells us that we are to blame. R.C. Sproul explained it in this way. He says, though God permits me or allows me to sin, I am still the sinner. I am the one doing the bad thing. I am the one doing the sinning. God does not cause evil. But he does allow it. And get this, he also uses it. He uses it. Now this here is really mind-blowing, folks. Let me give you several examples of how God has used evil. 
Remember, he used evil in the story of Joseph, did he not? Remember Joseph? Joseph was, was favored by his father and his older brothers. They resented him for it. They were going to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. You remember the rest of the story, right? After a few setbacks along the way and through God's providence, God brings Joseph to a place of prominence in Egypt. And after some time, there's this great famine in the land. And Joseph, because of his God-given ability to interpret dreams, knew a famine was coming and called for those in Egypt to be prepared. And so they were, and remember his brothers end up going to Egypt. And, and, and they go there for help, for assistance. And after a series of events, they are eventually united with their brother in Egypt. And they come to understand that who he is, is Joseph, this person helping them out. And then they're fearful that he is going to, to repay them for selling him into slavery. You remember what Joseph said to his brothers who were fearful for their lives? says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Listen to this. This is great. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So though Joseph acknowledges the fact that his brothers did a terrible thing. He even says, you meant evil against me. What you did against me was evil. Notice he says, though that's the case, nevertheless, God allowed you to do it, and he used this wicked act for his purposes so that many would be kept alive during this terrible famine in the land. It's a great example, isn't it? of God allowing and using evil. We also learn in the Old Testament that God uses evil against his own people, doesn't he? His own people, Israel. Listen to what God said through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Mark this down as well. We're going to discuss it in small groups. Isaiah 10, verse 5. He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of whose anger? My anger. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. God says, the staff in their hands is my fury. Now, we've just talked about Assyria, right? They were a godless and wicked and barbaric nation. Yet notice here, God says through his prophet Isaiah, they are the rod of my anger and the staff in their hands is my fury. Listen to verse 6. God says, Against a godless nation, I send him. Who's the godless nation in verse 6? It's the northern kingdom of Israel. God says here that he is going to use the wicked Assyrians as the rod of his anger to punish the northern kingdom of Israel for their wickedness, and that's exactly what God did. So we see here, Though, though God does not cause evil, he allows it and he uses it for his purposes. And we see that in Nahum as well. In Nahum, we learn that God is going to destroy the wicked Ninevites and the, the nation of Assyria. And guess who he uses to do it? The wicked Babylonians. So God uses the wicked Babylonians to punish the wicked Assyrians. 
God uses evil to punish evil. That's what the book of Nahum's about, folks. Nahum is writing to the Jews in the south. And he's saying that the wicked Ninevites who destroyed the Jews in the northern kingdom and who are now terrorizing you, Nahum says, you in the south, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be cut off. They're going to be done away with. Listen to what Nahum says in Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. He says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now get this, though I have afflicted you. I will afflict you no more. God's speaking in the first person there about the, the, what, what the Assyrians are doing to those in the south. He's speaking to Judah here, and, and he says that he has been using the wicked Ninevites to afflict and punish Judah for their wickedness. He says, I have afflicted you, and I will afflict you no more. I'm going to cut down this wicked and godless nation. Again, he uses the wicked Babylonians to do it. So he uses evil. And, and guess what? Some people would say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, right? Ah, he's different from the God of the New Testament. That's what he did back then. It's kind of old school. He's, he works in a new way in the New Testament. Well, if you think that way, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Notice what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Get this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here Peter tells us that, that Jesus, who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now, don't misunderstand Peter here. Those wicked and lawless men who tried Jesus and convicted him and who were responsible for putting him to death, they'll be held accountable. That is a wicked, awful, evil thing that they did. They crucified the Lord of glory, as Paul says. But we learn here in Acts 2 and elsewhere that Jesus was also delivered up according to the divine plan of God. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Father. It was the will of the Father to crush His Son. Wow. So why did Jesus go to the cross and die? Was it because of the acts of evil men? Or was it according to God's definite plan? The answer is yes. It's, it's both. What these men did to Christ was pure evil. But we learn here that God allowed it and God used it for his purposes. So once again, we see here, Scripture clearly teaches God is in control and that he's good. And though he does not directly cause evil, he does allow it and he definitely uses it for his purposes. That should bring you comfort today, folks. God can take the most wicked evil of acts and bring about redemptive God-honoring ends. That's our God. There's a third principle we learn here about the doctrine of evil from Nahum, and it's this. We learn God also punishes evil for his glory. God punishes evil for his glory. Though God allows evil and then uses it for his purposes, though that's the case, that does not mean that God is okay with it. 
He is not. God is not okay with evil. Told very clearly throughout the scriptures that God hates evil and will punish evil for his glory. And we see that here in the book of Nahum. Look at Nahum chapter 1 verse 14. Nahum says this. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. This is a prophecy against Nineveh. At this time, this prophecy was made. Get this. Nineveh was at the height of power. This was a very prominent and and powerful and prosperous city. The time when this prophecy was made, Nineveh was the greatest, strongest, most powerful city in all the world. But guess where they are 50 years after Nahum is written? They're nowhere. They're nowhere. This prophecy was fulfilled 50 years later. 608 B.C., Assyria fell, and it has never been a nation since. You know what? You could travel this world over, and you know who you won't find? A Ninevite or an Assyrian. This prophecy has been fulfilled. This city no longer stands. God has punished Nineveh. He has wiped them out, cut them off from the land. They are no longer We learn why he does this in the first part of this book, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2. Nahum says this. The reason why he does this is because the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Folks, God is a jealous God. God, avenging and wrathful. And many take issue with this. Maybe some of you in here, there's nothing I can do about it. Because that's what it says in the scriptures. Clearly, we're told right here, God is a, a jealous God. He is an avenging God. He is a wrathful God. Now, let's focus on that, that first attribute just for a moment. What do we mean when we say that God is a jealous God, is he jealous of us? Is he jealous for the things that that we have? No, we learn from Scripture God is not jealous of us. He is infinitely greater than us, infinitely more than us. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He is not jealous of us, but he is jealous for us. God is jealous for me. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for us. God is, is jealous for our worship. He wants us to make much of him. He wants his name to be great. He wants to be glorified above all else. He is jealous for our worship. He wants us to look to him and only him and to worship him and him alone and wants us to live our lives ultimately for him. Folks, we've said this in the past, but it needs to be said again and again. Our God is a self-centered God. Do you realize that? He is, and it's not a bad thing. The reason why is because he's the greatest being in all of existence. 
He is infinitely greater than everything else in all of creation. Therefore, he is the greatest object of praise. Therefore, he must be consumed with himself and with his own praise and with the fact that we are to worship him. He must be consumed with that. Listen, if God was not ultimately concerned with his name and his glory, he would not be valuing that which is most valuable, which is himself. Does that make sense? So God is jealous for his name, rightfully so. He is jealous for his reputation. He is jealous for his glory because his name, his reputation, and his glory is that which is most valuable. And because that's the case, he is also, get this, he is also necessarily set against any and everything that is a threat to his name and to his reputation and to his glory. He is a jealous God and he's also an avenging God and a wrathful God. Now, because that's the case, here's a follow-up question we got to ask. If this is true, if God is a, a jealous God who is necessarily set against any and everything that is a threat to his name and to his reputation and to his glory, then why does he allow for wicked nations like Assyria who do not acknowledge him, who do not worship him to continue on? Why? I mean, why is there evil in the world right now? Why hasn't God brought his hand of judgment down on the wicked today like he did with the Ninevites? Nahum gives us the answer in his book. In Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, he says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. God, though he has the ability to put an end to evil in an instant, he is slow to anger, he is patient with the wicked, and is merciful. He he was patient with Nineveh, was he not? He sent Jonah to preach against them and to them, and they repented, and God relented, and he turned his anger away from them, and he still waits another 50 years after Nahum's ministry to destroy this wicked city. He is is patient and merciful God who is slow to anger. We also learn that God is slow to punish because at times he uses the wicked for his purposes, doesn't he? He lets... This wicked nation continue because he uses them as an instrument of his wrath and judgment against those in the north. And he also uses them to redirect the Jews in the south, doesn't he? We said earlier that God used Nineveh to afflict his people Judah. And then he wiped the Ninevites out. And he did all this to show that, that he is the one in control, right? Though he is slow to anger, we learn that God is also great in power he's great in power god used nineveh to afflict his people judah and then he wiped them out to show that that very truth notice nahum assures judah god is going to deal with the wicked ninevites he he reassures them of that he says listen though you're being afflicted right now Though God is slow to anger, he is also great in power. And he is just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord, through 
Nahum comforts his people, telling them that though there are institutional evils in this world, though there are wicked nations that hate them and are opposed to them and are persecuting them, God reassures his people through Nahum that they can and should take refuge in him no matter what. Look at Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, he says, A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those, and the NIV says, he cares for those who take refuge in him. Notice again here that though this is a prophecy about the fall of the Ninevites, this is a prophecy that is for Judah. Nahum is writing here to encourage them. Notice Nahum says here, though it seems as if God is absent, though you're suffering at the hands of these wicked Ninevites, though it seems as if God is not in control, he is very much in control and he is going to take care of the wicked Assyrians. You just take refuge in the Lord. Nahum assures Judah, God's going to have the final word. He is by no means going to clear the guilty. He's going to take care of the wicked Ninevites. You just leave that to God. You take refuge in him. That's Nahum's message. That's Nahum's message to Judah. And folks, that's God's message to us today. It is. Boy, this applies to us, doesn't it? It does. Though we think today things are as bad as they've ever been, For God's people in his church, truth is they're not. Things have always been bad. They have been. Just study Christian history. We're learning about that in Christian history, right? Things have always been rough for God's people and for his church. Because there has always been these individual and institutional evils ever since the fall. They began to form. And they've always been an issue. But folks, the message from Nahum to Judah in the Old Testament is the same message that God has for us today. Though at times it seems as if there are no restraints on the wicked, though it seems as if God is allowing for the wicked to go unpunished, hear the message of Nahum. Though God is slow to anger, he is in control and good and just and will by no means clear the guilty. So believers, when times get tough for us, what we're to do in response is we are to hold on. We're to be faithful. We are to look to God as our stronghold, our great refuge in times of trouble. When times are tough, we're to look to him, we're to trust in him, we're to believe in him, and we are to follow him. Maybe you're here this morning. The Spirit of God's been working on your heart and life individually and he's made it clear to you that though you're not as wicked as the Assyrians that we've been talking about this morning you up to this point in your life have not lived your life for God and for his glory and the reason why is because you have not given your life to God by making his son the Lord Jesus Lord of your life this is you I pray you experience a change of allegiance this morning Pray if this is you that you turn from self to Savior. You turn from your sin, give your life up and over to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus. Again, Scripture is clear that though God is slow to anger, 
One thing we've learned time and time again through these minor prophet books is there's coming a time when God is going to return and he is going to punish the wicked. And at that time, it's going to be way too late. Here's the thing about that day, folks. Though we know that it will be, we don't know when it'll be. So we got to be ready. We got to be ready. The only thing we're promised is right now. So I encourage you, if God is working on your heart right now, don't wait. Don't delay. Turn from your sin. Make Christ Lord right here, right now, today, so that you can be ready when that day comes. Let's pray.